0: Welcome to CPAC Today in Politics. Coming up, an advisory panel gives the go-ahead for the AstraZeneca vaccine to be used on Canadians 65 and older.
1: It would be easier to be able to say that all vaccines are equivalent. I think that from an efficacy perspective, they do not seem to be all equivalent, although it is very hard to um, compare all those vaccines head to head.
0: Health experts keep a close eye on reported side effects as Canada's vaccination campaign continues.
2: With over 4.4 million COVID-19 vaccine doses distributed and over 3 million doses administered across Canada, federal, provincial and territorial authorities are continuously monitoring COVID-19 vaccine safety. To date, no unexpected vaccine safety issues have been identified in Canada.
0: And Aaron O'Toole. Says a conservative government would not cut foreign aid to so-called bad actors.
2: I'm not sure why now, right before the conservative convention, that O'Toole has brought that up, but uh, this must be showing up in their polling uh, that people feel the conservatives might be hard-nosed in areas that uh, that it should be more, shall we say, liberal to, for lack of a better term.
0: It's Wednesday, March the 17th. I'm Mark Sutcliffe. Let's get right to the top political stories this morning. I'm joined by longtime writer and broadcaster Dan Legere. Dan, thank you for being with us.
2: Well, thanks for the call, Mark.
0: Let's start with where we stand on vaccines. Uh, this is a critical time, obviously. We're in the middle of March, St. Patrick's Day today, of course. Um, and uh, I, I'm, there's news about the AstraZeneca vaccine as one example, that it uh, is being recommended for use in Canadians 65 and older. Um, I know a lot of Canadians have made appointments to, have, to be vaccinated in the last few days alone. Um, so what's your sense of how the rollout is going?
2: Well again, it is still going by fits and starts uh and slowly and to the point of of frustration i guess eh mark it's uh, uh I know the numbers in this part of the country are still very low um i mean there is momentum slowly building across the country um but they uh you know it's a massive massive undertaking with uh, immense complications, many, many precautions that have to be taken, and um, and also the public uh, information and public messaging aspect of it is complicated because, you know, some of these vaccines are had been, un- well, they all were virtually completely unknown up until a few months ago. So it does take time. It's not like the, the old boring flu shot we're all used to. Uh, so it does take a certain amount of of selling this to the population in order to get the uh, the rates of vaccination up higher.
0: Yeah, and obviously, as you've alluded to, one of the areas the government has to manage is what people are hearing and reading about uh, side effects and that sort of thing. And and there are governments in Europe that have taken action because of. Uh, concerns about that, even though the evidence doesn't seem to support a relationship between, for example, a particular vaccine and blood clots. There uh, there are governments being extra cautious. This government, the Canadian government, has said uh, they feel the vaccines are all safe and that there's no reason to be concerned, but there is going to be that level of anxiety in the marketplace because this is such a new and rapidly developed area, right?
2: Anytime something new uh, is introduced in a broad way across society. Uh, I mean, it's everything from the latest iPhone to, you know, your your latest streaming uh, options online. Um, there are early adopters, people who are comfortable trying new things and, and who will go and familiarize themselves with the technology or the science behind um uh, you know, certain things. And, and this is the same with these vaccines. Uh, mo- none of us, very, very few of us, are capable of, of uh, doing a scientific analysis of any of the vaccine safety studies or the uh, efficacy studies. But at the same time, I think the, um, the consensus among the people who are qualified to judge these things is that these um, vaccines are safe. Uh, you know, there is a certain amount of anxiety about the AstraZeneca vaccine that, that is the one you alluded to that is being re-examined in some European countries. Um, but I think in Canada, uh, you know, the, the authorities are confident that it's safe to use. And there's been no evidence to the contrary. So th- that's where we are right now. And, you know, I think the public health people are pretty much unanimous in saying, take the first vaccine that is available to you. So I think that's where we're going to go as this thing rolls out.
0: And what about the prospect of a third wave uh, in some parts of the country? Uh, Even as Canadians are getting vaccinated, there's the risk that numbers of infections are going up. I mentioned today St. Patrick's Day, there have been warnings about don't get together too much to celebrate. Um, so do you think there is the risk that even as the vaccinations are being implemented, that uh, we are going to see the numbers rise to a level where further lockdowns are going to be required in some places?
2: Well, this is the the thing that's driving everyone crazy, isn't it? I mean, we don't have any certainty about what's going on. And there are now uh, new uh hot zones that are popping up i know ontario is is one is very concerned the ontario government was talking about that yesterday uh th- there are issues in uh saskatchewan as well uh this is not over uh, far from it uh, you know here in atlantic canada they're talking about reopening the so-called atlantic bubble Uh, which would allow us to kind of move around between the New Brunswick-Quebec border and Newfoundland, you know, everything in between. Uh, But that is a far, far cry from opening the borders right across, uh, you know, the country. So um, there are so many layers of complications in this that... um, uh, you know, it, the watchword still has to be caution for, I think, ordinary people, for businesses and policymakers, because uh, I don't think any anybody in a position of authority wants to be the person who said, yeah, let's open the doors and wahoo party yeah. and then have a third, fourth, fifth wave on us. That's, uh, that's the big fear.
0: All right, let's talk about Aaron O'Toole for a moment. Uh, he's been the subject of uh, much scrutiny over the last couple of weeks, uh, and yesterday... Uh, the Conservative leader said that uh, Conservative government would not uh, cut foreign aid. Uh, this is a this is the kind of thing that some people might have expressed concern about if the Conservatives were elected. He's trying to reassure uh, people that uh, that's not a direction they would take. What do you think about that?
2: Well, first off, I'm interested in the timing of it. I, I didn't realize that we were having a big debate about foreign aid spending in Canada. Um, you know, it is an area that is deeply misunderstood i think by the public mark uh i uh, you know you see surveys where you know if you ask people in the population what do you think how much you know the country spends on foreign aid some people think half the federal budget goes to it when it's actually a minuscule amount 1.7% um which is not minuscule but it's 6 billion out of 355 billion of federal spending uh, so that's not an enormous amount. Uh, you know, Andrew Shear said that if the Conservatives had been elected under him, he would have cut 25% from that $6 billion. Uh, you know, it always becomes political. Uh, countries and programs that are sort of in line with the view of the reigning government tend to be supported better than those that aren't. Um, And even the Liberal government uh, is examining new ways of delivering foreign aid and priorizing uh, who gets money for what programs. So, you know, Canada has gained the respect of people around the world for its foreign uh Foreign aid spending, and uh, for being a positive force in global affairs, and foreign aid is a way of maintaining that. So uh, I'm not sure why now, right before the conservative convention, that O'Toole has brought that up, but uh, this must be showing up in their polling uh, that people feel the conservatives might be hard-nosed in areas that. Uh, that it should be more, shall we say, liberal, to, for lack of a better term. Mm.
0: All right. Uh, finally, let's talk about the proposed acquisition of Shaw by Rogers. Um, I'll mention uh, that both those companies are part of the consortium of cable companies that own CPAC. Uh, but this is a major, major transaction that will have an impact on cell phone users across the country uh, and is likely to uh, and already has provoked some political discussion and, and ultimately maybe a decision that politicians will have to be involved in. Uh, what do you think about the direction this is heading?
2: Well, um, you know, telecoms. Uh, telecommunications is a federally regulated area. It uh, comes under federal jurisdiction. Um, So point one. Point two, uh you know this is a massive merger 20 billion dollars is a lot of money on the table and uh you know mergers of this size are almost always examined by the federal competition bureau which tries to default to uh you know allowing mergers to take place but i mean this is a unique industry this isn't uh like truck driving that's got 500 little companies around the uh, country this is four big companies uh, which will be now reduced to three. And, Mark, everyone's got a cell phone, and uh, everyone is tapped into the Internet through these large providers. And so it's going to be a political and consumer issue. Um, you know, the Conservatives and the NDP have both brought it up within the last day or two. Um, you know, they both are encouraging, uh, you know, more competition. Both are calling for lower cell phone rates, and, and Canadian cell phone rates are among the highest in the world. And, uh, you know, so it's going to go political. If, if any matter that involves something that everybody has one in their pocket, uh, it becomes a popular topic and we all have feelings about our cell phone bills. So this is going to go political. It already is starting to. And, uh, I think it's going to bubble up as quite a significant issue, uh, in Parliament as the, uh, as the session, uh, plays itself out. This, this is a story I think that's got some legs and uh, has an impact on, on a massive sector of, of vital interest to, uh, to the Canadian government.
0: All right. Great to have your comments on all of this today, Dan. Thank you for joining us.
2: Okay, Mark. Talk to you soon.
0: That's Dan Legere, longtime political writer and broadcaster.
2: Expert advice on the optimal use of vaccines is being adapted to maximize the benefits of COVID-19 vaccines authorized for use in Canada.
0: Now, here's what political columnists and commentators are writing about today. At the National Observer, Colin Ruloff argues when it comes to COVID, trust the experts and ignore the pretenders. Ruloff writes We're bombarded with information coming from all sides and angles. How do we distinguish between sound science and the hocus pocus? The answer is fairly obvious. We should defer to epidemiologists, virologists, vaccinologists, and other scientists deploying their formidable range of skills to combat the pandemic. After all, our health and well-being depend upon it. At National News Watch, Joyce Carter argues the future of Canadian aviation is at risk. Carter writes, Federal and provincial governments must work with airports and other industry stakeholders to create a plan. If we are to emerge from the pandemic with a functioning air sector, do we restore our national network or close regional airports and force Canadians in smaller communities to drive hundreds of miles for a flight? Do we ensure Canadians have access to reasonably priced air service or force them to drive to the U.S. for an affordable flight? In the National Post, Tasha Carradine argues, just because governments want us to live in big cities doesn't mean we should. Carradine writes... Politicians constantly seek to make cities more livable. But maybe the best policy would be to enable greater choice in the types of communities people can live. The ability to work remotely has already enabled thousands to move to smaller communities. More would take the plunge if policymakers addressed the lack of broadband internet, high-level health care, and accessible schools. Cities will always be crucial engines of economic growth. But the time may be right. For a rural renaissance. Now, here's what's coming up on Canada's political agenda. The Justice Minister will appear before a Senate committee this afternoon. And as CPAC's Martin Stringer reports, he will argue for the Senate to accept the government's final version of its legislation
1: on medical assistance in dying. Mark, Justice Minister David Lametti will appear before the Senate Legal and Constitutional Affairs Committee where he will ask the Senators to accept the latest version of a bill to expand access to medical assistance in dying, even although the Senate's amendments were rejected or modified by the House of Commons. The legislation comes in response to the Quebec Superior Court ruling, which said it was unconstitutional to limit medical assistance in dying only to individuals whose death was reasonably foreseeable or imminent. That requirement has now been removed. But when the bill went to the Senate, senators further widened access to assistance in dying, saying it was wrong to continue to ban people suffering from mental illness from seeking help to die. The Senate amended the bill so that a ban, that ban, would end a year and a half after the new bill becomes law. The government accepted that change, sort of. It has extended the time limit to two years and has required the creation of an expert panel to recommend safeguards that would apply to requests from people suffering from mental illness. The government also rejected the Senate's changes which would have included advanced directives allowing people to request assistance in dying in advance of losing their mental ability to decide. The government would not go that far. So, we will have to see if the majority of senators agree to compromise and accept what's been sent back to them or dig in their heels for a fight. The government has already sought and received four extensions to the deadline imposed by the Quebec Superior Court for complying with the ruling. The latest, and very likely the last extension, expires on March the 26th.
0: Thanks, Martin. Also today, the Prime Minister will speak with the Prime Minister of Italy. Bloc Québécois leader Yves-François Blanchet will hold a news conference in Ottawa. Justice Minister David Lametti will make a virtual funding announcement. Veterans Affairs Minister Lawrence McCauley will make an announcement about COVID-19 response infrastructure. Agriculture Minister Marie-Claude Bibaud and Jim Carr the Special Minister for the Prairies will speak with the media about the government's proposed changes to agri-stability. Employment Minister Carla Qualtro will announce support for fish and seafood processors in British Columbia. Fisheries Minister Bernadette Jordan will speak about support to businesses in the fish and seafood processing sector in western Nova Scotia. And Economic Development Minister, Melanie Joly, and the Minister of Middle Class Prosperity, Mona Fortier, will take part in a virtual news conference. And that's CPAC Today in Politics for Wednesday, March the 17th. Tune into Primetime Politics tonight on CPAC for coverage of all the day's events. Our podcast returns tomorrow morning. Have a great day.